Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, wherever you are in the world, beloved Salonista. I'm Damien Barr, and you're listening to the podcast of my live literary salon. Now, we were supposed to be having this salon at the Savoy in person with all of you, but, well, dot, dot, dot. So, we're having this salon digitally. It's our first ever online salon, and all three of our guests appeared on Facebook Live. They are John Niven, Peep Fides, and Polly Sampson. So, you're going to hear me introduce them, and in each case, they're going to be reading and taking questions that have been messaged to them, and also some of the questions that I've sent to them. So, uh, you can check all their questions and their answers, because they type loads as well, on the Facebook page. Just how much do we all need to get away right now or even just get out of our houses? At their best, books take us into a different world and change the world around us. Our next book is the mini break we all need, but it's more than sun and sand. It's a meditation on feminism and freedom and making music and art. It's all of that and more. It's set in 1960. The world is flirting with revolution and disaster, and the Greek island of Hydra is a heady microcosm. Everything is more intense here. Sunshine, beauty and envy. Hydra is home to a now legendary circle of artists living messy, tangled lives, and all ruled over by the writers Charmian Clift and George Johnston, troubled king and queen of Bohemia. They are chorus and actors in the drama between magnetic writer Axel Jensen, his dazzling wife Marianne Elin, and a young Canadian poet called Leonard Cohen. And to the middle of all of this arrives 18-year-old Erica Hart with a bundle of blank notebooks, grief for her mother and dreams of her own. What or who is the price of paradise? Can utopia ever last? Will Erica's dreams materialise? Let Polly Sampson whisk us all to Hydra in a theatre for dreamers. So a theatre for dreamers um, is set on Hydra and most of it takes place in 1960. Um, but it begins um, the, 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 at the, just on the night, the morning after Leonard Cohen has died. So this is now my narrator who for most of the book is 18, which is why Romany is going to read the next section but at this moment she's an old crone which is why I'm reading it. It's a climb from the port and I take the steps of donkey shit lane at a steady pace a heart-shaped stone in my pocket. I walk alone and though there's no one to witness I resist the urge to stop and rest at the standing posts after the steepest part. I watch my step a stumble can so easily become a fall a thought that disgusts the gazelle still living within my stiffening body. The marble slabs shine from centuries of use. The light is pure. Even on a morning gloomy as this, with the sky low enough to blot out the mainland and clouds crowding in on the harbour, these whitewashed streets dazzle. Two young lads skip arm in arm down the steps towards me. I'm as anonymous as a shepherd or a muleteer, in Dinos's ancient tweed jacket, my hands bulging its pockets. My boots are comfortably laced. The lines on my face have been deepened by these years in the sun, and my hair hasn't seen dye or even the hairdresser's scissors for who knows how long. But so what? It's off my face in a loose tail, 
the way I've always done it. I'm still here, a little bruised, a little dented, but remarkably the girl who first set foot on this island almost 60 years ago remains. I suspect only those who knew me then can see through the thickening patina and it breaks my heart how rapidly the crowd of seers is diminishing. The call about Leonard came last night. I sat quietly for a while, listened to the owls. I took out my old notebooks, the threepenny jotters that came with me to the island in 1960, found him in my hopeful curly scrawls. My neck got cricked, the cocks crowed all through the night. I slept badly and woke to a morning crowded by dreams. The summer visitors are long gone, there's unrest in Athens, as austerity bites, refugees, lost children, fires in the streets. Boats are going out, pulling people from the water. There's plenty for us to chew over, so you might think we'd let the American election slide by. But at the port this morning, as I idled with my one good bitter espresso of the day, watching the mules being led away from the boats with their cargoes, the news of the new president found me. It slithered from the water with the morning pages and spread rapidly like a stench along the agora. There were horrified groans, even from the donkeys, disbelieving splutters from every table passerby and boat. For a moment, it was a comfort to think that at least Leonard has been spared this. I stop outside Maria's shop at Four Corners and listen for voices. I would feel a fool if anyone saw me approaching his front door with my heart-shaped stone and I prepared to walk straight past as I turn the corner from Crazy Street. The street isn't actually named Crazy, but something that sounds similar. And that's what we heard when Leonard came fresh from the notary, pulled off his sixpenny cap and landed the deeds to his house beside it on the table. His grin a little bashful at first, self-conscious, like we might all think he was showing off. Later that day, we came armed with borrowed pails and long-handled brushes for whitewash, and Leonard had new batteries for the gramophone that he'd placed in the centre of the stone floor. Some of his records have warped like Darley's clocks and become unplayable, but there was Ray Charles and Muddy Waters, and a woman singer I liked, but whose name I don't remember. Later still, a fire of lumber among the lemon trees on the terrace, jugs of retsina, a little hashish, dancing. Paint, spattered shorts, brown limbs, bare feet. War babies, most of us even younger than him, and him just a cub, really. We lapped up the freedom our elders had fought for, and our appetites reached well beyond their narrow, war-shattered sh war shadows. Was it drugs and contraception that made change seem possible? Was it a con conscious revolution? Or were we simply children who craved languor and sex and mind alteration to ease the anxiety that was etched into our DNA, detonating in each of our young brains its own private Hiroshima? <laughs> to my dad, I was a bloody beatnik. Okay, and um, do we go straight on with young Erica now? Yes. Yeah? Yes. yes. Young Erica? Okay, so Romany will now read young Erica. She will try to read Young Erica. She will read Young Erica. And um, don't judge her young Marianne. <clears throat> Sunshine stalks us. It binds us to the rocks, casts us in bronze. It sharpens shadows, blazes the mountains, strikes the white walls so they almost blind us. We slake our thirst with retsina and beer, live on fruit and salad and bread. The thought of cooked food makes everyone feverish. 
We take long siestas among the fir trees with our many new friends, and bob around in the merciful blue sea, making plans for sundown and nightfall. We hop like fleas from bed to bed. Those with houses, the least number of steps up from the port, find their beds get hopped in the most. Even the most disciplined among us have given up pretending to work. The revolutionary poems stay half-written. Paintbrushes stiffen in jars of congealing spirit. The My Notebook grows vague and filled with doodles. The moon rises like yeast from its bowl in the mountains. Beneath us, the rocks remain warm from the sun. The breeze is laced with pine, a mountain herb and suggestion. And as I settle deeper into my crevice, the crushed leaves of rock rose, rock rose are sticky with the smell of churches. These rocks and the sea belong to us once the tourists have finished with the sun and gone back to their yachts and hotels. We're all of us complicit in this freedom, and there's nothing to fear. Even wicked police chief Manolis seems to have been defeated by the sheer numbers. The music is almost deafening some nights from Lagudera, where girls in bikinis dance outside in the streets. Leonard sent off the manuscript of his novel on the same day that Marianne dispatched the baby to Norway. He says it's the only copy in the world that's now winging its way on a prayer to his publisher in Canada. It appears he can think about little else but burning boats and drowned mail. He scans the horizon from his favoured rock, threading his kumbali beads back and forth through his fingers with a look of such anguish I, I can only suppose it was the I Ching told him not to make a copy before sending it. It seems like Marianne has been hiding away since getting back here from Athens without her baby. Now she and Charmian climb out of the, the water and stand drying off, taking turns to rub a towel through their hair. They allowed me to walk right onto the plane with him, Marianne sang, as I stand at the edge and pull off my dress. Look around and decide nobody will care if I step out of my pants. It was an empty flight, just Nita and Susie and three men in suits. I almost stayed. It would have been the easiest thing in the world to have just buckled myself in. I can feel Leonard watching me. I turn and catch him at it. He doesn't look away. I glance at Marianne. She's noticed him looking. Something starts hatching inside me. The sea slaps the warm rocks, but only gently. I plop myself in and flip onto my back and let the waves bob me while I wonder at this thing that seems to come fully fledged with the power to wreak havoc. I squint up at them, all ranged on the ledge with the moon and the mountains behind them. I swim back to the ladder. Little Booley crawls across slippery wet rocks. The seawater makes his underpants droop like a nappy. Charmian's swimsuit does her no favours and is so worn out it's become transparent. Marianne is a silver sylph in a new yellow bikini. She's asking Charmian about a recipe for curry and hurriedly hands me her damp towel so that I can cover up. Thank you, Romany. So nice to have Romany to read. <clears throat> so the Damien question is your main character, Erica, yes. uh, receives the gift of a book called Peel Me a Lotus. Yes, I from have. Her, from her mother. It's not, it actually what it is, is that it comes through the post. She lives in Bayswater 
This is actually the, the copy that was published in the UK in 1959. Um, and um, Erica's mother um, was Charmian's friend because Charmian lived in Bayswater in the early 50s for several years while George Johnston, her husband, was running um, the Associated Press on Fleet Street. He was a stringer for Australia. They were both Australian. And they had, first of all, moved to an island called Kalimnos. They'd done a very brave thing. In those days, moving to a Greek island wasn't a simple thing. Um, it was a very brave thing. And they'd had two small children, and they decided they'd go to the seat of civilization and go and move to Greece with their children in order to write. And they went to Kalimnos for a year, and then they went to Idra. Um, Charmian wrote an incredible memoir about Kalimnos and the sponge industry there. And then she wrote this book, um, which actually is the book that I first read that made me want to write about this community. So that's, yes, yeah, so, so, so Damien's question goes on about, yeah. um, you know, how did Charmian, the, the writer who lived on Idra and indeed the island of Idra, come into your life and what made you want to write okay. about them? So um, we went to um, Idra and um, what it was was it was May half term and just had this real longing to go somewhere and swim and somewhere beautiful and be with all of my children and that sort of feeling when your children are growing up that there are not many more holidays where you can just rely on all being together although at the moment of course we are all together it's marvellous um no sorry that's really um not all not all not all of our children are here but those who are here are being incredibly nice about being here um and um and so yes in 2014 we had all gone to idra because rosie boycott my friend had said that Idra was somewhere where the sun was likely to be to shine and where we could swim in very clear water because there are no sandy beaches it's just all swimming off the rocks and it just sounded great and so on a whim we went and um, I, I don't think any of us realised we were all huge Leonard Cohen fans but I don't think we even knew during that trip that it was actually the, the island that Leonard Cohen had a house on but what did happen as a result of that trip was I got to read a copy of this, this book and just found myself really, really sort of intoxicated by Charmian Clift and, um, and then sort of went on researching her and found um, that there were over 1,500 photographs that were sort of... Some of them were quite famous because Leonard Cohen was in them. And whenever you see something with Leonard Cohen and his life on Idra, you see Charmian and her husband, the writer George Johnston, pictured in those photographs. But no one, it seemed to me, had ever put those people together. And so I started on this sort of labyrinthine trail of Charmian, how she related to Leonard, who all the other people were there in this Bohemian community. And yeah, six years later, that came. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. So while we wait for a few more live questions to come in, we've got another one from Damien. Um, and uh, it, it, one thing that comes across in the book is that Hedra, the island of Hedra, is at once um, heaven and hell. Uh, so can you please give us an insight into both sides of the island, both heaven and hell? Um, and um, uh, you obviously spend a lot of time there. So, what do you love about it now? And what I don't do think that love? the heaven and hell thing kind of counts now because actually it's just heaven. I mean, if you're there now, what, what is there not to love? It's beautiful. It smells of 
of flowers, there's no cars, um, you know, people are happy there, the sun shines, the water is clear, um, there are beautiful places to walk up in the mountains. But at that time, in this community of writers that, 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 that Charmian and her husband George Johnston were kind of king and queen of this community, and Leonard came in 1960 and joined them. And the problem with it is it's an island, it's five miles long, there is one town, it's a very, very steep, hilly island. Um, the reason that there aren't any cars, and there are no cars to this day, is that it's an island of steps, and there is really only one waterfront. It's tiny, and there are just the, you know, tavernas and the coffee houses that are on this one little crescent-shaped, very beautiful waterfront. But it means that if if you're there, and actually the same is true today, if you're there, you are going to see the same people day in and day out. And as we might all relate to this feeling now, you know, that is something that is quite tricky. It means that, you know, one has to negotiate one's <laughs> relationships and, um, you know, and not let things fester. And um, I think that that made their lives quite difficult. They only had each other. And whatever was going on in their private lives, I mean, you know, George Johnson and Charmian Clift had three small children. George Johnston was um, very, very ill with TB, writing two books a year to keep food on the table, one pot boiler, which he most definitely is, didn't go to a Greek island in order to write pot boilers, and attempting to write one other sort of more literary novel a year. Um, you know, he was very unhappy. He was impotent because he was t on medication to treat his TB, married to Charmian, who was a sort of ravishingly beautiful, very vigorous, vital woman, um, who was still in her mid-30s. And, you know, this community of people coming and going, you know, a lot of them very kind of starting to sort of experiment with ideas of free love. Um, it put huge strains on all sorts of relationships. And so it's like, that was the hell. The hell was each other. So we're just waiting. I think Damien is, is, <coughs> is compiling some of the questions that are coming in live. So while we okay. wait for him to do that, let's ask him another of Damien's questions. And what you were saying kind of uh, leads into it. Damien says, The island is tiny, but was full of huge personalities and talents with problems to match. Charmian Clift and George Johnston were king and queen of the court, but there were also Henry Miller, Cyril Connolly, Patrick Lee Fermer, Axel Jensen, Marianne Illen, and of course, Leonard Cohen. With so many real characters, <laughs> how and why did you decide to create the fictional characters Erica, Jimmy Jones, and the others? How did you go about fictionalising real people? Well, first of all, the Henry Miller and Cyril Connolly were there years before this lot, in that they were there in the 40s. Um, the, the reason that I made up um, Erica, well, I didn't want to just write a biography of the people who were there. I wanted to sort of see them through the eyes of someone who was going through her own transformation at a time when society was going through such a big transformation between the first wave of feminism and the second wave of feminism. And we have an 18-year-old girl who has been deprived, really, of any sort of insight into how her life might work out. She's been nursing her sick mother in Bayswater, and and ends up going to um, Idra in order to seek out the most interesting friend of her mother's, who is Charmian Clift, and um, and I thought it would be a really good way to put the reader right in the middle of this community by having this girl 
who sort of is just a portal to where they are. She gets to be there. She gets to be right in the middle of things because Charmian sort of takes her under her wing. And um, and so, yeah, that's what she she was there for. And her boy, she goes with her boyfriend. And I had great fun write, writing her boyfriend. I sort of objectified him, really. I mean, he's this sort of, you know, he stands for the sort of ideal boyfriend that any 18-year-old might want. Jimmy, he's so handsome, he's so gorgeous, he's a poet, but he's an absolute shit. But um, Erica doesn't know that for most of the novel. And so um, I really enjoyed writing Jimmy because I, you know, I thought for once, you know, let's have a female character just look at the bum of her boyfriend and, you know, kind of completely, you know, relate to him in terms of how he how he is physically in the way that often when one's reading a young man writing about a young woman, one sees the woman. I thought it'd be interesting to do it the other way around. And so that's who Jimmy was. We've got some live. I think yes, Damien's I think Damien's only... picked out some live there questions. Go. We've got. Uh, from Fernando, can you describe the creative process? How long did it take to research? How was it? How long it took to write the book? How many pages do you write per day? Oh God, I don't know about pages or even... Um, well, I, I started the book in 2014 um, and I sort of... It started with the idea that I was just interested and then gradually this interest became something that was sort of you know leading me into a more definite idea in fact the, the idea changed um over the next couple of years because i kept finding that other people had done aspects of this story so i kept having to kind of completely change the angle that i was coming in on it from but my interest didn't never sort of waned and i just found that there was more and more and more to read because that i suppose what what i started with were these 1500 photographs once I got those it the research took on a sort of obsessive quality because I wanted to identify all the people in the photographs and once I'd identified all the people I then found that many of them were writers and you know writers write and so there were lots of books and academic libraries full of their diaries and their letters and they wrote about each other and um, yeah it became quite quite a quite labyrinthine and quite obsessive and um, I was lucky that um, David got quite interested as well so <clears throat> while I was writing he did quite a lot of the research and he actually joined me in the kind of obsession of it all and that was massively helpful because I th at times I thought my head might burst so it was good to have someone at the end of the working day you know we just carried on talking about it really um, so yeah um, and I don't know how many pages I write a day. I, 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 I would sometimes set myself things like I'd sort of, I'd write in a shed and I'd think I'm not coming out of this shed until I've written, you know, whatever it was, whatever my thing was. Sometimes it'd be a thousand words, you know, and that's just sort of a sort of ridiculous thing. And in the end, this one used to come and haul me out and give me a cup of tea and tell me to stop. Um, and then other times, you know, I'd find it was flowing and I could write sort of two or three thousand words. It just, it's just different depending on you know where you are in the story and um and how urgently you feel that the next bit you're writing needs to be told i think there there is there are a few questions about whether whether it's going to come out as an audio book cuz obviously physical books uh, have gone a bit weird okay. so can you is there, yeah. is there going to be an audio book well the reason my voice is a bit hoarse is that actually there is going to be an audio book and um 
the wonderful Rachel Sterling was going to read the audiobook and unfortunately her nanny has come down with the dreaded virus and so she's no longer able to do it. And we'd still quite like to get the audiobook done and so David very kindly is um, recording me reading the audiobook and um, at first you know I felt quite gung-ho about that um, but there are a lot of accents and I'm not a trained actress um, and you know my Norwegian is not so good and it might drive people insane. So I yeah, you. yeah, I know you do. <laughs> so yeah, so we keep having to go back over the sort of dialoguey bits because sometimes I do get a bit carried away and um, no one wants to be listening to that. So we've got another question from Damien. Um, the only words Leonard Cohen speaks in your novel are words that were actually spoken by him. Yes. Um, you didn't. You didn't. You didn't fictionalise no. any of Leonard's dialogue. No. Um, why did you make that? decision and how on earth did you manage it? Well, um, yes. Uh, so when I, um, eventually, I'd been working on this book about Charmian for quite a long time, a couple of years, and I found that someone else had written a book that was very close to the one I had been writing about Charmian. And um, at that point, um, Marianne had died, <clears throat> and the letter that Leonard had written to her had gone viral. And up to this point, I'd thought that I could write a different book about Charmian. It was going to be first-person Charmian, and Leonard, I, you know, was a problem to me because I didn't. I'm I'm such a massive fan, and you know, I mean, I do think that he is arguably, you know, the greatest writer of our age. And so I thought that the way I could kind of have Leonard in the original version of this book that I was going to write was occasionally he could just walk past whistling but I wouldn't really need to have to put him in. I mean, he'd have to obviously be there, but it was a very different sort of book. And um, and it was covering an earlier period of their life on Idra. And um, someone who worked in film got in touch, and it was such a sort of... This book has kind of... There's been endless sort of serendipitous things. Um, so I got in touch and said, um, oh, you know, I've just read this letter that, that Leonard Cohen wrote to Marianne Elan, God, there's a novel in this and you should write it. And I sort of replied, well, it's funny you should say that because actually I am working on something that is on, set on Idra around that community. And she then kind of was sort of, you know, sort of quite keen that I should look at doing the Leonard and Marianne relationship, which I was kind of really, really kind of backing away from um, because I just felt so self-conscious about it being Leonard. And eventually David and I went to Idra and I said, I've really got to be sure that I'm turning down this person, you know, that I know what I'm doing. It's not often that a film person is actually getting in touch with you and asking you to do something. It's normally you're sort of begging people to be interested in what you're doing. And um, and so we went to Idra, and while we were there, um, Leonard Cohen died. So that felt like a kind of weird sign. Um, and um, And then I did feel like I could do the whole community. I didn't feel as sort of hamstrung. I mean, I don't know what it was. I just kept thinking maybe I'd run into him or something. Um, but now he was dead, I felt like, you know, I could do this. But I was still stuck with how to voice Leonard Cohen. And I was still thinking maybe he could just walk through the port whistling. And then sort of almost on a whim, I came up with the idea that if I did enough research, I could get things that he'd actually said. And I could just use his real spoken word in 
my book um, because actually he was writing his first novel at the time and he had an amazing work ethic so I figured that he didn't need to be around chatting away very much you know he was actually working quite hard as we know he did and um, and then it just became a thing really was to track down I made myself a sort of rule that it should be on the whole it should be things that he said before he became a famous musician um, and so I found lots of really, really interesting interviews with him and I started to sort of catalogue them under, you know, when he was talking about monogamy or when he was talking about writing or when he was talking about Fitzgerald or whatever he was talking about. And I just had all of these kind of bits of paper with things Leonard had said in this period in the 60s sort of pinned up around the place. And occasionally I would reframe the conversations that these original quotes came from and put Leonard into them. And it was a way of sort of limiting his appearances also which is that I didn't want to just do sort of free-speaking Leonard because I've read other things where people have tried to voice him and they just really don't work. He has such a very particular way of talking. So although I kind of, many times I sort of regretted it because I made such a sort of hard and fast rule for myself, there'd be times when I just want him to say I'd like a coffee and then I'd be like looking around to try and find something where he was asking for a coffee because it was such a sort of crazy idea that I couldn't have him say anything unless he'd said it. Anyway, in the end it worked, I think, I hope. Um, what are you doing to endure this quarantine, creatively speaking? Uh, one sentence answer. One sentence. Um, doing the audio book. Quick, one doing sentence. Doing the audio book. <laughs> yeah, 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 great. Uh, is it possible a theatrical adaption of the book? A, a play, but there is a very good play called Idra, which I'm dying to see, that's been on in Australia, which is about exactly this community. And um, God, I wish it would come to the UK. I long to see it. What would be the playlist to the book, says Yamil Cat? The playlist, I've done a Spotify list, um, and um, it's there, Bloomsbury. If you look on Bloomsbury on Twitter, they've put out my Spotify list with notes. Okay, we've got some more questions what that have come in right now. Damien says we can sneak one more question in. Do I think this book would work well as a movie? Yeah. Yeah, yes! <laughs> <laughs> All right, thank you so much. Thank you. Everyone. Thank you, thank you. And if you enjoyed listening to that but would like to watch it, you can check our Facebook page and look at the videos and you can see me chatting with the guests and see the guests in their homes and see me in my home and just generally watch it all as well as listen. And of course, if you haven't subscribed to our newsletter, you can do that via our website, which is www.theliterarysalon.co.uk. Thank you.